Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Hello, folks, and welcome to the Tennis Podcast, an edition of the Tennis Podcast in which myself, David Law, Matt Roberts were supposed to be reflecting on a week of tennis and looking ahead to a fortnight of tennis and talking about tennis, tennis, tennis. And alas, tennis has intervened and provided a whole host of other talking points that aren't tennis related for us to get our teeth into. It has been a busy week in tennis. I don't know how we're going to cram it all into one (laughs) tennis podcast, but we're going to try, David. Well, the good news is we've got Simon Briggs on so he can help. Uh, I mean, the other thing is we were supposed to be in New York. And we're not I even was doing trying that. not to dwell on that, David. <laughs> Just trying to focus on the, the positives, which are Matt Roberts is going to be in a caravan. Hooray. Yeah, which is exactly 10 minutes from my house walking. And the agency <laughs> through which I booked it has not stopped sending me emails about things to do in the area because they think I'm going on holiday or something. <laughs> Have you discovered anything you didn't know about? What are the things to do in the area? Does it include watch US Open on telly? Lots of great walks. You've got Visits a cathedral. To the seaside, cathedral. Haven't you got a big Lido as well? Yeah, a castle. All sorts of fun, but things I've done. And, and won't be doing this fortnight. Yeah. If anybody hasn't caught this, the reason he's staying in a caravan down the road is that uh, he doesn't want to wake up the rest of the family in the middle of the night while he's recording tennis podcasts for you. He also just wants a, a US Open caravan. Who doesn't? I mean, I, I'm quite jealous, I must say. <laughs> uh, David is not currently, but will be in a sort of, you know, Salford style caravan setup. I mean, okay, a hotel, but, yeah. you know. I'll be in Manchester um, with the BBC radio team talking every single day about, uh, about what's gone on and then talking to you a lot about what's gone on. And I'll be in Hounslow. So. Don't ever let it be said that uh, a tennis podcast can't be glamorous during a pandemic. Um, We love doing our Althea Gibson and Arthur Ashe Tennis Relived podcast. We really did. If you haven't listened to them, please do. I I know for some people, 
tennis relived might not be right up your alley you know you only sort of turn your attention to the podcast when actual live tennis is happening and I totally understand that and I'm you know with other podcasts that I listen to I'm kind of more of that persuasion but I can't believe you'll be you'll you'd regret giving your time to listening to those two podcasts so um, if you haven't then then give them a go Uh, but for now I'm going to stop banging on about the past (laughs) because the present is uh, providing us with an awful lot to get our teeth into in terms of of tennis we have had two champions two singles champions at the western and southern open not in cincinnati sponsored by the gerber life insurance baby which will haunt my dreams forevermore <laughs> um are, uh, that is uh, a logo which featured on the backboards of the court which was i mean some sort of childlike character from a horror movie genuinely disturbing baby face um our champions for the week were Victoria Azarenka and Novak Djokovic, perhaps not surprising on the Djokovic front, but Victoria Azarenka, a first title for her since 2016, um, a pretty momentous moment. Unfortunately, it came following a withdrawal from her opponent, Naomi Osaka, ahead of the final. We are going to talk about the tennis. We're going to talk about those two finals, Novak Djokovic beating Milos Raonic. What a week Milos Raonic had. We're going to talk about the US Open draw and what we're expecting from the next fortnight of tennis. But uh, unfortunately, or fortunately in, in, in some of the cases, other events off the court have, have rather overtaken the tennis, particularly towards the latter end of this week. I think we should probably start with um, the pause in play on Thursday, the joint decision by the USTA, the tournament and the two tours, the ATP and the WTA instigated by Naomi Osaka to pause play on Thursday to delay the resumption of the tournament by a day um, in recognition of the Black Lives Matter movement of events in Wisconsin, which we discussed on the Arthur Ashe podcast. There are those events are and the subsequent chain of reaction is still very much ongoing um, in the United States. There was the police shooting of a black man and the subsequent um, terrorist, right wing terrorist attack um, on protesters, Black Lives Matter protesters at the scene of that shooting. Um, And Naomi Osaka felt the need to act. She said that she hoped her decision to not play on that Thursday, on what would have been semi-finals day, which was later backed up by the tours and the tournaments, she said she hoped that decision would trigger a conversation. <laughs> well, if that was her aim, David, she has achieved that aim. She might not be necessarily delighted with everything that's been said in all of those conversations, but conversations have been started. Yeah, uh, I felt pretty uplifted by first of all her her reaction the fact that she was just instantly of that view that that's what she wanted to do that that's what she felt she needed to do and actually i was really pleased the way the tours reacted as well i i know that uh not everybody on the player side were were happy about the way they went about it i think that the maybe there needed to be some more consultation but at the same time the decisions taken were were swift and given what she, that she'd already announced what she was going to do 
if tennis was going to make a statement itself and show that it meant business and that it took this opportunity seriously, it had to, to act quickly. And the two tours and the USTA just immediately decided we're going to stand shoulder to shoulder with you, Naomi, and we're not going to play tennis on Thursday. And I personally was really pleased that they did that. Yeah, likewise, it was it was a great moment of unity um, on be- on behalf of tennis and a moment of solidarity with Naomi Osaka. We uh, unfortunately, as, as I've said, uh, Osaka had to withdraw ahead of her final with Victoria Azarenka with a hamstring injury. She did win through the delayed semi-final which would have been played Thursday was rescheduled for for Friday against Elise Mertens extraordinary that she won through that given everything that had gone on in the previous 24 36 hours she said she hadn't had much sleep the night before we did get the chance to to hear from her a few times in press didn't we Matt subsequent to to that decision um, and she was prepared to act alone when she made the decision. It was an independent solo decision, but she obviously informed the the WTA tour of that decision and and was was pleasantly surprised to discover that that they wanted to to support her and show that that moment of unity. Yeah, she said she felt like maybe the ATP and WTA, in a way, were wanting to do something like this but they needed a little push from a player to do it and she provided that push by by putting out her statement um and i just i just loved the way that it just seemed to her like the right thing to do she said i didn't feel particularly brave doing it it just felt like what i should be doing in this moment and that is that is sort of echoing so many athletes in america who have been using their platform and using their voice to make similar gestures in other sports something i said on the arthur ash podcast which i'll say again now because i do i really believe this that it's it's especially impressive that osaka did this in an individual sport where she didn't know what the reaction was going to be she didn't have teammates to rally around her um and yeah i just i just think she deserves a lot of praise for going out on a bit of a limb and doing what she felt was right. And I think Raonic has been incredibly impressive with his response to it. He he said that when he learned that there was going to be a postponement the next day, that didn't really matter to him because he recognised the importance of the situation and that this suspension of play was bigger than tennis. And he just accepted it and there was no hesitancy in whether he felt it was the right thing to do or not. And that was impressive. And I agree with you, the tools stepping up, recognizing the moment and coming together, showing that tennis can be stronger when it's, you know, when the men and women are working together and decisions are made together. And yeah, it was just a, it was a very encouraging 24 hours before um, the next 24 hours was slightly less encouraging, but we will get to that. Can, can I ask any issue for either of you with the fact that she effectively withdrew from the to- from the tournament and then was still allowed to play that semi final? She she says she didn't. Yeah, she was very specific with what she said her action was and what her wording was. All she said was that she, she didn't want to play tomorrow. She never said she was pulling out of the tournament. So for me, it wasn't it wasn't an issue. And I do think there was just a little bit of miscommunication in terms of what Osaka had actually done. People thought she'd withdrawn from the tournament. And I'll be honest, I kind of thought she had. So that when I did see her name still on 
the schedule for two days time I was a little confused but then she she really clarified that in her press conference I thought and explained the sequence of events so so for me no problem yeah she, as you say she received immediate support from Milos Raonic who, who came in into press not long after uh, that decision from Naomi Osaka was was announced in terms of support from from other fellow players we had a slightly unfortunate moment of Victoria Azarenka after her semi-final victory over Johanna Konta coming into press and the moderator announcing that she would only be taking questions about the tennis and when uh, she was challenged about matters other than the tennis, about whether she supported uh, what Naomi Osaka and the, the tours in the tournament had done. She did not respond to that line of questioning well at all and, and refused to be drawn on it. Now, Obviously, the inclination there is to read into that, that she was unhappy with it. She hasn't publicly stated that she was unhappy with it. Um, I'm not sure anybody has publicly said, in terms of the players, I don't think that should have happened. I don't support what she and the tournament did. However, we know that feathers were ruffled by it uh, because a lot of feather ruffling type uh, action or post feather ruffling type action has taken place uh, in the days that followed. Now that what happened on Thursday at the Western and Southern Open was not the only catalyst for the formation of the PTPA. Have I got that right, David? It's not an acronym that I'm getting on very well with at the moment, yes. an acronym, the, not an acronym. I can't even say acronym, let alone <laughs> say what the actual acronym is. The Professional Tennis Players Association, which I think probably requires a little bit of a rewind, doesn't it, in order to just... Yes, how uh, far do we... You're always wanting to live in the past, David. Well, that's <laughs> tennis, right. Tennis Relived, the PTPA edition. <laughs> um, well, Off you I, go. I, I mean, first first and foremost, you could probably go back at any point over the last 40 years and there'll be somebody who has started trying to talk about a player union that will represent only players. And whereas you have this situation with both the ATP and the WTA tours where you have this 50% and 50-50 marriage between the players and the tournaments and the players often have dissented and said we we are not getting enough of the money that is generated by grand slams and other tournaments and we don't want to be in this arrangement with with tournaments we want to have our own association our own union the most recent of its type that really pushed for it was one driven by Andy Roddick back in 2011 uh, I remember that very well at the time also at the US Open and he he was absolutely convinced of, of what should be done and, and eventually not enough players supported and back away and it didn't happen um I, I actually always found his logic pretty compelling uh on on many levels this particular uh version of it started i think in early 2018 at the australian open where novak Djokovic, then the players president the of the player council asked the atp staff to leave the player meeting that they were having at the australian open so that they could have their own conversation and, and he presented with a lawyer um, ideas for a union that was at the time um, just bubbling under the surface uh, it didn't really happen not much happened but uh, but things sort of have gradually moved on from there and uh, I think it was well for a start 
a year ago, Chris Commode at the ATP was ousted by the players, including Novak Djokovic and Vasek Pospisil with uh, Justin Gimelstov behind the scenes. And then he stepped down from tennis generally because of the court case that was uh, hanging over him after he was uh, found guilty of assault. So Chris Commode was ousted as the head of the ATP uh, and in came Andrea Gaudenzi and Massimo Calvelli as the new bosses at the start of this year. And all the noises were that... Um, the players were supportive of this new regime and there was talk of involving the the women the female players as well in some sort of a union or but at the same time they were also supporting the the incumbent associations and then pretty much i would say quite suddenly over the last week it has suddenly become apparent that they are trying to activate this separate player association and it did feel as though in reading the letter from Novak Djokovic to the players that was put out on Ubi Tennis it it reads as though the last two or three days it's really kicked off and the Osaka situation and and one or two others as well have just sent them over the edge. That sounds like politics David do you know what politics calls for? Gotta be Simon Briggs. Bit of Briggs. Uh, David's been chatting to Simon Briggs. So, Simon, we have been following it closely, our end. You've been following it, no doubt, just as closely your end. What has been the tipping point here, do you feel, that has made Vasek Pospisil and Novak Djokovic pull the trigger? Well, I think it was like an opportunity that stemmed from the bubble. All the players in one place, um, chance to get them all engaged when there's not a lot going on. And also, when you look at who's absent, obviously Nadal and Federer are right at the top of the list. Also, Stan Wawrinka, he's been pretty um, supportive of the ATP in, in the kind of in this debate about whether there needs to be a splinter group. Um, he's quite critical before of moves, you know, to change and shake up the ATP. And Keen Nishikori, maybe too. So, um, you know, quite a few of the main sort of who the ATP would argue were voices of reason would be absent. Um, and then in terms of the issues, well, there was the, the Payard-Dillian um, instance of them being blocked from the tournament after their physio tested positive, and that was very contentious. And the players thought they were being taken for a ride on that one. So that was an instant grievance to add to what's been a drip, drip, drip. Uh, and the final factor, I would say, is that Andrea Gaudenzi wasn't in New York, so the chairman of the ATP, he's um, certainly built a very different reputation depending on who you talk to. If you talk to the administrators, they'll tell you he's quite a smart cookie, very strategic. Talk to the players and they'll say that they haven't seen him and they haven't heard from him and that he's remote and he doesn't listen to them. So those, I think, were the uh, the root causes. Mm. What, what about the Osaka decision to to not play and the subsequent decision by the tours and the tournament and the usta to cancel a day's play did that come across as as anything to do with this yes um so according to my sources the meetings were already happening on thursday morning before anything happened in terms of um or, or do i mean wednesday morning let's say that the meetings were already happening before the uh, suspension happened so they were already doing this 
But then I just tweeted a quote from Novak's letter to the players in which he specifically cites that instance as an example of the players not being consulted. He says that he, that it was very disappointing that nobody had talked to them before the decision came in that a player had been suspended on Thursday. Um, so it wasn't a mover in the decision to launch this weekend, but it was used as an example and a bit more fuel to add to the fire. Mm. It's it's changed quite dramatically, hasn't it, in a few months? Because if you consider that this is the group really that wanted a change at the top and wanted Chris Commode out, that happened, and and they're still not happy. I mean, has it been given enough chance, this, this new regime? Well, I wouldn't have thought so. Um, it's been pretty unique circumstances that they're trying to establish themselves in. Um, I think behind it all, there's a, a an issue with the the proposed merger of the ATP and the WTA. Uh, I think that's worried a lot of male players. Um, you know, there's always two points here. There's the actual decision to do it if it happens, and then there's the question of whether they felt consulted about it. Um, so I think that Gaudenzi is very keen on agglomeration of TV rights. That's one thing that people know he stands for. And they also wonder if that's going to lead to the whole tours joining up. And if you're a male player and you're earning, well, for every hundred quid you earn, the women earn about 75. Um, you know, you're probably concerned that that's going to end up being well, 87 and a half quid each, <laughs> if you see what I mean. Um, so I think there is, there's a bit of a, an anxiety about that and also a sense that the players on the ground don't really know what's happening. If that's a reality, if that's a, a gossip, you know, what, what, what aren't they telling us sort of mindset. Mm. And Vasek Pospisil today has said in a tweet that, uh, they do intend to include and involve women. Uh, the female players, and yet none of them were in the photo yesterday. Well, I mean, clearly they weren't recruiting females. Um, <laughs> you know, that's that's point one. No, there was no discussion that I have heard of in in uh, New York between uh, the PTPA founders and women. I mean, that's just. Uh, I think he's reacting to the criticism. I mean, Todd Woodbridge went uh, very strong, didn't he, overnight on a uh, Australian current affairs show pointing out the this is as the biggest weakness. He also called it tone deaf to launch this body, uh, you know, at a time when everything is in flux, people are losing their jobs, and um, the USTA are certainly putting on a tournament where the players are going to get the lion's share of the revenues. Um, it does, it, the timing is, is good in a sense for the, for the group, as I say, because they can all get together with very few distractions and, some of the main opponents not being here, but it's also, you could argue that the, the, the tour is trying extra hard to to help the players out at this minute. Mm. What what can they do with this from here? Because, I mean, it's, it's one thing to create a, a body, but there is still an ATP that is supposedly representing both tournaments and players. So it, I, I don't know where it fits, where they see it fitting. Yeah, and it's very interesting how hard or perhaps how anxious, you know, the, the tone of the, of the letter that Gaudenzi sent to the players on Friday, it was very 
as if they were they were seeing this as a massive crisis and warning them not to rip the sport apart. But even if they do uh, achieve a, a heavy representation of leading players, and I'm not sure that the 60-odd on the tennis court are in themselves heavy enough to create a real movement yet, even if they do, it's quite legally complicated for them to take the next step, which is to pressurize tournaments because of something called the Sherman Act, which is antitrust law stating that if you're self-employed contractors, it's illegal for you to talk about boycotts, let alone to to actually perform one. Um, and that's very... <laughs> A very big obstacle. You know, when Djokovic originally started talking about this, which was at the 2018 Australian Open in the player meeting there, and he asked the ATP executives to leave the stage while he um, invited a lawyer on to talk about the possibilities legally of forming a player association, <laughs> one of the uh, long-serving ATP people kind of sighed and said, well, it's only the seventh time I've sat through this <laughs> kind of series of events in which, you know, people start to... Uh, uh, try and bring in a players' association. Andy Roddick was pointing out that he tried to do it in um, what 2011. Yeah. Um, it's happened so many times, and and one of the reasons why it's never taken root is because of this massive legal obstacle, the Sherman Act, which, uh, which has equivalents in other nations, but the, that's the American version of it. It's just really punishing to try and get around that. Uh, so, unless you are employed, unless you kind of create a situation in which you you have a an employee-employer relationship, which is what you get in team sports, strikes and boycotts of, of pretty much impossible to organise. Mm. And if they're not doing that, you know, how are they going to exert power? You know, Djokovic said in his press conference last night, he said, we're not going to have any executive power, not of the, but not of the early days anyway. But then in his letter to the players, he said that that's what we want to work towards. And and that journey, well, that's a very interesting one and, and one that's not clear what the route is. So, as I say, when Gaudenzi was warning all the players this could bring the roof down on the game, you know, I was wondering, that was an option he took, a tone he took, but there would have been another way of doing it, which was to sort of shrug, because is that player association in its early days going to be a threat? Legally, it's kind of hard to know where they push. Mm. Do you think we'll hear much more about this throughout the next two weeks, or or is it... I'm going to now be benched for a while. I think it's hard to know exactly where the story goes right now. I mean, I did see one person on Twitter saying, you know, the ATP said, don't do this. They have formed the association, you know, with 60 odd players in New York and probably about as many again who are not in New York, but sort of joined by email. So does that mean that the ball's in the ATP court? I mean, I'm not really sure that it is. I think... Djokovic will look to recruit more names behind the scenes and make it look stronger. I mean, if you're a tournament director looking at that list, you're certainly noticing the Canadians, aren't you? Um, Shapovalov and Azure Aliassim as a couple of very hot properties. Uh, I think Berrettini's on it, Djokovic himself, obviously. And then, you know, what about the others? Are they going to sort of strike fear into your heart as a tournament organiser if... if, if they come to the point where they're saying, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to play because we we feel that it, this is unjust. I don't know that they've got enough leverage yet, but, but maybe he'll feel that he can work towards that over time. It's going to be very interesting. Uh, are you are you looking forward to this US Open? I mean, it's 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 bizarre. It's not 
what we maybe expected, um, even when we spoke to you back when Wimbledon had been cancelled. But, but how do you feel about the tournament now? Well, I'm about to get the taste of what it's like for a broadcaster, aren't I? Because quite a few broadcasters are off-site for these events in different time zones and, um, and therefore have night shifts and uh, disrupted sleep patterns, which I guess is what I'm going into as of tomorrow. I mean, I guess you know, Carl Edmund's playing, what, nine-ish probably? Nine-ish, ten-ish tomorrow, so maybe I can just cover that and go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a very wistful-sounding Simon Briggs there. It sounded like a man that was already lamenting the loss in his life of post-coital cigarettes <laughs> during the US Open or the well, figurative uh, journalistic equivalent of a post-coital cigarette. You know, I was only thinking about Simon in US Open hours the other day when I was on a on one of these virtual press conferences on Zoom with him in, I don't know, about two o'clock in the morning or something, and he looked exhausted and i was and i was i was thinking back to last year's us open when you i remember you recorded with him and he was he was praising the us open hours how it very much suits his deadline he can clock off at 5 p.m in new york and enjoy the you know enjoy the night scene there but um this this year feels oh, like he's enjoying a night comeback. scene it's just a very very different night scene yeah how did Simon. post-coital cigarettes come up last year i can't quite remember he was talking about what it's like to sort of clock off at 4pm and, yeah. Go back and listen, folks. It was a simpler time, a better time. Go and live in the glorious past for a That's bit. That's when he was shouting, check me out, yeah. for Bianca Andreescu, who isn't even in the tournament. Yeah, it was an all-time great episode of which we did submit part, submit parts uh, as part of our entry for the British Podcast Awards. Got us nowhere. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, back to the politics of it all now there is there is so much to pick up on there i mentioned that obviously the what happened on thursday with the pause in play and and the perceived um by this faction of the men's players the perceived poor communication of what was going on uh, between the administration and the players that is but one but one catalyst for for what's happening here. And as David explained, this has been bubbling along for a while. We kind of thought it had gone away because talk of unity was in fashion. I mean, Vasek Pospisil was presenting a online TV show called Tennis United. Irony alarm, anyone? Uh, Alongside a female player. Alongside an actual human female um, that he isn't keen to include, apparently, at some point in the discussion. Uh, Not include, involve, I think. Anyway... Um, so that was but one factor. Um, we understand, uh, as, as Simon mentioned there, that the Free Guido campaign, as it has been called, hashtag Free Guido, cannot quite believe, even in the age of extreme internet stupid, that hashtag Free Guido is a thing. But apparently it is. Uh, that is also a factor in what has transpired this week. Matt, do you want to explain what free Guido is all about? Do I have to? Um, well, Guido Pella, as we know, I think I think we've talked about this on the podcast that he, because this was a couple of weeks ago now, his physical trainer tested positive for COVID nineteen, and due to the tracing, contact tracing, Hugo Delian and Guido Pella were in quarantine for fourteen days inside the US Open bubble and. 
it's what what sounds like a miscommunication along the way and that the players were informed that I think they were informed on a call with the USTA that you would only be placed in quarantine if you were sharing a room with someone who tested positive for COVID-19. However, I believe the actual waiver they signed and the sort of documentation they signed and the public health guidelines in New York do make it clear that 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 is not the case and that if you've had significant contact with someone who's tested positive you need to quarantine for 14 days and this seems to have really riled a lot of the players and they've been unhappy sort of on 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 behalf of Guido Pella and Hugo Delian who have been yeah just in their rooms for 14 days I believe they were allowed out to train on a court near the hotel and they had to wear masks and sort of face visors to get to that court and they didn't interact with anyone to get there so they have been allowed out of their rooms to to do a bit of training but the players have felt aggrieved and I mean it sounds to me like Guido Pello is upset that the fact that he's tested negative seven times he kind of thinks he should be allowed out he put a he put a video up on Instagram and as much as I feel sorry for him and it does sound like possibly the physical trainer's test was a false positive to begin with we don't know that but it's possible as much as I do feel for him he has signed up to those rules and those rules are in place for a reason and I'm not really sure there's much of a leg to stand on when they're complaining about that because those are those are rules that are there for everyone's safety and it just it feels it feels very wrong that that is being used as one of the catalysts for this for this player association movement to sort of rush it through and in general that people are annoyed about that because it's it's really for their own safety and for the wider safety of everyone involved with putting this event on which has taken an awful lot of effort to get to this stage and those lack of legs to stand on have been completely highlighted but by, by a development that has uh, emerged Today, reported in L'Equipe magazine, that Benoit Paire has tested positive for COVID-19. The USTA has put out a statement confirming that a player has tested positive. We understand from L'Equipe that that player is Benoit Paire, which would make total sense because eight days ago he was on court in his first round Western and Southern Open match against Borna Chorich and he retired from that match trailing six love, one love, looking very, very ill. It has taken eight days for him to test positive. We understand, according to the protocols, that he would have had three tests in that intervening period, which I trust were were returned as negative tests. This completely emphasises the need for what some people, I'm sure, perceive as overkill. But this highlights precisely why it is not overkill. A, A negative test does not make you bulletproof. You couldn't wish for a better illustration and example of why the protocols and measures and safety procedures are the way they are. And yes, I I sympathise with Guido Pella and Hugo Delian. I really do. It is tough on them. I'm not suggesting this is or feels fair to them. But this is a global pandemic. The nature of it is that you have to be unfair to be safe. And COVID-19 is unfair. It disproportionately affects people that are already socioeconomically worse off than other people. It disproportionately affects people from black and ethnic minorities. This is not a fair virus. 
and we all have to endure some of us a lot more than others and suffer a, a certain degree of unfairness and and as far as I'm concerned the argument concerning Guido Pella and Hugo Delian has been completely put to bed by what has transpired today I mean it if it ever needed to be which is if if you're up to to speed with with the facts didn't need to be and I realize I've just talked for about seven minutes <laughs> Catherine's virology corner let's call it <laughs> this is Paige the co-host of Giggly Squad and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box and if you break it down it really comes out to two dollars a manicure which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. We have had a statement today from Vashek Pospisil stating that that he does intend to include women involve women and that he has lots of support from women women tennis players i i we have tweeted for in reply from the the tennis podcast account asking what the stated aims of the ptpa i keep wanting to say pta like the parent teachers association it is not the parent teachers association i'm gonna have to just keep saying it over and over to myself um what the stated aims of the ptpa are in terms of commitment to equality of prize money and scheduling and women's issues within the sport and and what their stated aims are overall because that's where things get a little bit fuzzy right i mean it seems like they've just sort of thought this is our moment we've got all the players here Federer and Nadal ain't here a lot of the ATP representatives aren't here certainly not the top brass this is our moment regardless of the fact that we don't have a 
a coherent plan in place of any kind, we've got to take the leap and go ahead with this. And it's a bit baffling, really, that I don't even know what they're leaping into. And I'm not sure that they do either. Well, I think I think it's frustration talking and, as you say, bubbling over. And I, I, do, I do kind of get it in that regard in terms of they're just seizing their moment. Um, I personally don't like that i in as much as i think that there's so much at stake at the moment the the whole future of the sport is sort of in flux really because of of this pandemic and and i just feel that there's trying to make your play for a bigger piece of a pie when we have absolutely know what the pie will look like over the next year it doesn't feel quite right to me. I mean, Novak's view in his post-match press conference last night is that there's never a good time, but it's always a good time. And, you know, he, he compared it to having a baby um, in that regard. Um, but I just feel that, come on, is this is this really what the sport needs at the moment? Do you, do you really need to be arguing your corner at the moment for for something when somehow the USTA has managed to produce this tournament out of, out of the ashes and you ha- have something with three million prize money to the winner on offer and, and a guarantee of how many tens of thousands for a first round loss. Wimbledon has has stuck its hand on its pocket and given everybody who would have played Wimbledon an amount of money. Um, I do feel that players probably deserve... And or at least have a certainly strong argument in wanting more of the 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 pie overall, based on how much they generate of the revenue that is generated. Andy Murray was saying that last night um, that he he could he he's not ruling out one day voting for this, but he feels he wants to give the ATP new management more of a chance first, and and he also really wasn't happy with the fact that they were going ahead without standing side by side with the the women on on this issue um but i just feel i just feel like the timing is all wrong it's it's not it's not completely that i don't think that this is a valid a valid cause uh, i think to think it may well be the only way to proceed in the future in a certain way it, this doesn't feel like the right way and coming off the back of a period where I was arguing a few weeks ago that Novak Djokovic should stand down from the player council because of his his handling of the Adria Tour, in which, whilst a a noble gesture and effort on his part in intent, was an unmitigated disaster. Um, I just feel that his his credibility as a leader off the court at the moment is pretty shot. And therefore, I'm struggling to to think that, that that he should be driving this through. And there are there are rumours, and look, they are absolutely rumours, not substantiated that that Justin Gimelshob is involved um, in in the background somewhere. Certainly not in an official capacity because he's not he's not permitted to be. Um, but those rumours are are swirling around. Um, yeah, and and that argument you just you just made there, David, that that Andy Murray made pretty eloquently in, in press yesterday about you know not dismissing the concept out of hand by any means, but just this not being the the time or place for this movement. That was absolutely what what Federer and Nadal expressed uh, in their tweetings yesterday. Nadal first, and then Federer, the sort of 
the, the horsemen, <laughs> the Twitter horsemen. Sort of tennis uh, overlords coming yes. in. And I do find it quite weird the way they sort of formally agree with each other on on Twitter. We've had that twice now with the with the merger back in back in April and um and now this. It's just it's just quite a amusing way of communicating to me. I don't know, I just find it quite funny. Um I mean I I can't claim to fully understand all the politics of this and the sort of pros and cons of a player association. Like but I do know that a lot of people whose opinion I really value and respect think that, you know, as you've said, David, a player association could be a way to go in the future and does have a lot of merit to it, but not done in an untimely manner, rushed through without without really seeming there being any kind of plan. I've heard David Goffin today come out and said, look, there's just there's just no information. We don't know what we're signing up for at the moment. So how can I possibly sign up to it? In theory, I think it might be a good idea, but not at the moment done in this manner. Um, there's all sorts of questions about what are they actually going to be able to do as a group, what leverage they'll have, as Simon was saying. Just basically, how is it going to work and what is the plan? It, it, it just it feels rushed. And there's also a big difference between including women from the start and having them as an afterthought, real stated intentions are clear by your first action. And their first action has been to totally exclude the women. Um, so, yeah, it, it just, doesn't, just doesn't sit very comfortably at the moment. Yeah, and, and launching it uh, from a launch pad of objection to a stand taken um, in support of the Black Lives Matter movement and an objection to... Um, strict measures to prevent the spread of COVID-19 at a tennis tournament is not a great PR look, I would suggest. While I know there are other factors at play, as I said, those seem to be the two most immediate recent catalysts and that doesn't look great. And I'd say the fact that Feathers were so ruffled by what Osaka and the tours did justifies the action. The whole point of action like that, they, they're only effective if they are disruptive. It makes me think of what Mary said about Arthur Ashe in our, in our most recent podcast about how Arthur Ashe disliked injustice more than he liked decorum. I kept thinking of that when I was hearing about how, oh, we're just annoyed at how it was communicated and we should have been consulted. Sorry, but... Checking that everybody is completely happy and, and not disrupted at all by something something like that completely misses the point. The point is that people are disruptive, that it could, that it makes the, waves. Could these players be saying the same thing in response, though? That, yeah, we're ruffling feathers, you're not going to like it, but we think this is the right thing to do, deal with it. Maybe, and everybody has to, to look at the, the detail of it all and make up your own mind about whether you... Everybody thinks they're doing the right thing, don't they? Yeah, absolutely, David, you could say that. So that was what I'm sure will be a continually developing political story that's uh, bubbled up over the last few days and was bubbling throughout the latter stages of Novak Djokovic's campaign in the Western and Southern Open, which does really make it all the more extraordinary, David, that he, he won that title. Yeah, and he sounded and he looked as if he was not feeling great. He, he for a few t a few days he seems to have had some sort of neck problem. 
He described afterwards in the press conference following this victory that he it had been a very emotional time and he looked really drained, to be honest. He looked... I, I mean, Goran Ivanovic, his coach, Marian Vider, his other coach, they don't think Novak Djokovic should be doing any of this stuff uh, with the player council. They would rather he didn't. Um, Janko Tipsarevic told us about... said he was... He thought he thought he was mad. If you remember in our interview with him last year, um, they think he should just be going about trying to be the best player of all time and not worrying about this. And that that's the area where I have respect for Djokovic that he cares enough about this to put this into his life when he really doesn't need to be. Um, so I think his his intentions in some regards are are honourable in that way, um, and they could cost him uh, in terms of his career. But the fact of the matter is. He still managed to win this tournament, and he was playing Roberto Bautista Agut in the semi-finals. Uh, the ball machine that I think has beaten him three times previous to this, and somehow managed to win that seven love, I think, in the tiebreak in the third set. And then he was a set down to Ranić six one down, and he he's never lost to him. And it was it was interesting. I didn't watch the first set. I joined it late, and suddenly it was just like every other match they've ever played. Ranić looked. Totally bewildered, uh, having looked so cocksure of himself in every other match that he played. Yeah, and, and quite cocksure of himself in the first set against that final, uh, against Djokovic in that final. He 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 looked well, maybe not cocksure actually. He looked surprised by how well it was going. He looked a little bit like this wasn't quite what I planned for. I thought, you know, maybe I might just win this, but I didn't think I'd be dominating. Novak Djokovic the way he was in that first set because he really was and Djokovic looked you know he was doing the hangdog thing he he looked he looked down and out he, he looked like he had no answers but of course he does have answers of course he does and and it was pretty extraordinary the way he came back in that match because because Ranić is a real force on these courts I did not see the Ranić resurgence coming this week at all I saw the hair coming from a, a long way off um, that's quite quite something um, no since January yeah yeah he did what Matt didn't have the guts to do he embraced his lockdown <laughs> yeah. hair yeah I'm glad you're owning that Matt that could have been you yeah I'm, I'm actually I'm actually quite um, I don't know I find myself rooting for Raonic at the moment he's saying the right things he's his whole vibe is sort of embracing as you said lockdown hair and he seems to be really really vigilant about the virus he's one of the ones who's staying in a in a private house um in New York um and to be honest I think he's playing the best tennis I've seen him play in years I think he's had He's had little bursts over the last few years where he's looked quite good, but never has his backhand looked this secure. I mean, normally when Ranić goes to the backhand, I get a bit anxious as though he's going to make an unforced error. Not at the moment. He's serving brilliantly, as you would expect. Um, and yeah, I mean, that first set, Djokovic was was vacant, really, in that final. So it's 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 even more staggering the way that he could have just kind of let that one go and just got himself ready for the US Open but he didn't he found he found something extra within himself to to topple Raonic who was playing well and um was it 2 years ago 
that Djokovic became the first man ever to win all nine Masters mm -hmm. 1000 titles. He did it at Cincinnati. Well, he's now won a second Cincinnati, which means that he's won all of them at least twice now. You know, he is he is distancing himself from the rest of the ATP tour in terms of his consistency across the events and his and his ability to compartmentalize his life and sort of have the have all the off-court stuff going on and yet still be able to perform on the court is truly extraordinary and I keep I keep expecting it to take its toll and it does occasionally as I described look like it is because he looks drained and yet he still manages to win it's um I mean I don't I don't really have words for how impressive it mm. is and um and he's the he's the huge US Open favorite he has to be he, he's enjoying that record that unbeaten record isn't he 23 and 0 He's guarding that mm. very, very strongly. It would be, it could be a quiz question in years to come, couldn't it, in the sport round? In which year did Novak Djokovic go unbeaten for the season? And people go, what was the year of that pandemic? What was that COVID year? It was that year, wasn't it? I do um, hope they're saying that. Yeah, yeah. Or they might go, oh God, that's vivid in the memory. Um, yeah, I mean, it is in. It is entirely plausible that he'll go unbeaten for the year. I mean, it wasn't entirely fanciful at the start of the year before the pandemic torpedoed all of our dreams and plans for 2020. We, we, we were sitting in your flat, Catherine, <laughs> having watched him just win Dubai mm. when he gave that kind of off-the-cuff remark in his on-court interview, didn't he, about, yeah, maybe I can go unbeaten. But it, it, did, it felt pretty much as though he was laughing at it as well as saying it, uh, and then suddenly we didn't have any tennis for six months. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, if you think, the last person to beat him was Federer at the O2. Federer's not on the tour for the rest of the year. It's actually, I think, a 26-match unbeaten run because he won three at the Davis Cup finals after the O2. And, and he looked... I mean, that was back-to-back -back losses he took at the O2, team and Federer, and he looked drained and tired and yet he's he's able to suddenly put together these runs that no one else in men's tennis is able to do it's a level of dominance that he's he's had for a decade really where he's occasionally put together runs like this and it does feel when they're happening like there's kind of no way that they're going to come to an end of course he's going to win he steps on as a massive favorite every match he plays and he just builds confidence the more he wins um it's kind of like his it's kind of like his shield his confidence yep and i i i'm nervous that david law's going to do a sneaky australian open thing and talk me out of picking him for the us open title well like i said uh stefano sits <laughs> looking pretty good Catherine. and like and, you and, tweeted david right before yeah. sits a pass lost to brownich yeah um i I just about had the foresight to put in brackets um, Q collapse. And sure enough, within five minutes, he'd lost the set and then he was just tail spinning out of the tournament. Yeah, <laughs> he did a, did his uh, press conference around it, his pre-US Open press conference, where honestly, I know he's got his head in the clouds. I know that we all know that. But even for him, it was... It was Who sits like, the pass? Yeah, sits a pass like he's walking around in a fugue state. Honestly, he just didn't seem to have any concept of any anything. He, he wasn't. He did. He wasn't 
anti or for the Professional Tennis Players Association because he didn't seem to know anything about it. It's not anti or for anything. But, I mean, you've, <laughs> he's barely conscious. I don't know how he is able to play tennis. I mean, honestly. <laughs> but that's why I think he, That's aside from the fact that he's this incredible athlete with this great game, I think that that makes him dangerous. And he actually beat three massive servers this week, didn't he? He beat John Isner. He beat Kevin Anderson, and he was he was beating Riley Opelka before he got injured and retired. But it's still problematic for him against Raonic. He keeps losing to him. He can't return his serve reliably enough. But I still think he's in for a big fortnight. Vague, big fortnight, nice and vague. Is Raonic uh, a contender at the US Open? To win it, no. Yes. No. Not a contender to win it. How I many don't, I don't How many people it. are in the mix? It's the return of the mix. Oh, my word. I've forgotten what the definition of the mix is. Wouldn't be surprised I'd, if they won. I think three players are in the mix. I would say four. Medvedev, Djokovic and Sitsipas. Okay, four. And team. Yeah, yeah, those four. Yeah. That's, that's your mix that's on the, the mix. Inside. Yeah, I agree. That, that is the mix. So you're putting in, in the mix... Somebody that's never reached a Grand Slam final over somebody that has. What I would say is that if you're if you're going to win the US Open, I think you need to beat Novak Djokovic. And Raonic has never beaten Novak Djokovic. He's lost to him eleven times now. Medvedev, Tsitsipas, and team all have wins over Djokovic. Okay, sold. Yeah, I was only playing devil advocate. Um, how big is the mix on the women's side? And is Victoria Azarenka in it? I think she is in it, and I think it is big. I think it's a big mix. The good news, Victoria, is you're in the mix. The bad news is that so are 35 other people. (laughs) Yeah, literally. It it would be better if you were in the men's mix. (laughs) I really do think... How big is the mix? Give me a number. I'd have to tot it up as players that I think could win it, but I haven't done that. I, I, but okay, I think okay. It, oh, you can round up or down to the nearest. Definitely 15. I think it's way Matt. higher. Yeah, I think higher than 15. I think we're looking at a 25-woman mix, maybe 30. Yeah. I mean, I was looking at that draw, and there are so many players who I think could go out in round one or win the tournament. Yeah, I've and got Alexandra Sasnovich in my uh, um, quarterfinals because that section of the draw is just... I did a Kuzmova, Matt. I thought, she, she well, someone surprising is coming through, so just as likely to be Sasnovich as anyone else. I think I might have put Sasnovich. Oh. Where have you got Sasnovich? In the quarters. Mm. What? Yeah. She's in a section really? where the seeded player to get to the quarters is Petra Martic. Yes, it's the Miladenovic martic section. And Vondrusheva, who I've yes. made that mistake before. <laughs> okay, so Petra Martic is 14 in the world, and so she's a lot higher seed. Is she in the mix? I would say no. Okay, but I think there are players who yeah. are not seeded or seeded lower who are in the mix. In I would the, agree. In the mix, I, I would yeah. put Annette Contivate and yep. Maria Sakari in there, yep. and Elise Mertens. Yeah. I don't think Sakari's in the mix to win it. I would put Elise Mertens in the mix. Oh, it's Maria Sakari, isn't Zachary, it? Sakari, yes. I need to get that right. That's going to take quite a lot of retraining. 
Yeah, uh, the excellent uh, pronunciation guide. Oh, on it's the so website. great! But the Plishkovs pronounce their name differently on it. No, yeah, really? <laughs> yeah, it's oh, my favourite yeah. thing ever. Have a listen oh. to Carolina and uh, Christina. <laughs> Okay, fantastic. <laughs> but other than that, it is a fantastic resource and, um, yeah, a brilliant thing to have done. Maria Zachary. Um, so you would put Maria Zachary in the mix. So, Victoria, you both think Victoria Zarenko is in the mix. Two oh, weeks on, ago in Lexington, when she lost to Venus Williams, her game was being ripped to pieces, basically, yeah, by both poli- politely, but, but basically written off as out of date. Okay. Yeah, well, I, I asked her about pundits. that. I went, I went in her press conference afterwards because I was, I was so taken by the way she'd played this week versus that match, which I saw, and she did. She looked like a relic in that match, and uh, yeah, she, she was a different player in terms of her, her strategy of just standing in, going for it, striking the ball. Okay, I mean, I think she was on the back foot for a set against Johanna Conta, but she reeled her in. And uh, she beat a lot of good players over the last week. I think she beat Caroline Garcia as well. Um, and, you know, she's somebody who's been to the final and very nearly won this tournament a couple of times. I personally don't expect her to win it. I'm not going to pick her to win it, personally. But if she plays like that, she could beat a lot of players in that draw. Um, and arguably any of them on, on a day. So... Yeah, she she hadn't won a match in singles since last year's Cincinnati, and then Whoa. and then and then she, as you said, reeled off. She beat Jabur, Garcia, Cornet, Vekic, Conta. These are really good wins, and she had a she had a confidence back when she was on the court. I've I've often thought that she's kind of been in these draws as 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 a kind of dangerous floater for for a couple of years now, and she's not really lived up to that billing and I think the more defeat she's taken the more her confidence has been knocked kind of culminating in that as you said that defeat to Venus Williams in Lexington where she looked underpowered and fragile to be honest and yet now she's playing it's almost like that was (laughs) she's almost written that off as, as as bad as it can get and now is that there's a sense of nothing to lose with her this week. And I don't usually like that expression in sport because I always think there is something to lose. And yet she was playing like there wasn't. She was playing with a confidence that I haven't seen for a long time. And um, and isn't that good to see? Because she has been through a, an awful lot of, mm. over the last few years outside of her control in terms of tennis. I asked her about whether she'd thought about retiring over the last three years, and she said absolutely. Three times she'd, decided, she'd thought about retiring, including in January this year, and then just basically decided to give it one more go. Um, and she she did look really so thrilled about it all. Um, mm. it, it was a cracking match uh, against Joe Conter in the semi-finals as was uh, Osaka against Mertens unfortunately I couldn't follow either of them particularly closely because they were scheduled at the same time at 11am local time on two of the outside courts which due to other <laughs> other political things we don't really have time to get into but can I have a murmur of agreement from you both that that wasn't tennis scheduling's finest hour? No I was really disappointed in it uh, I thought it was just tonally again just and it was just what are you doing come on 
if if there was an, a, I didn't see there was any need for it. I think there was there was room in that schedule to play all of them and give them all their moments, their their stage. And secondly, as we as we've had so many times when people use the the view, well, you know, the 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 men, the the women have got to give time, been given time to recover because their final is the first ahead of the men's. Fine, okay, we'll switch the finals then every other week and so that you don't always have to give the women the short end of the stick in that sort of situation. Yeah. When push comes to shove, the women get shoved. Um, we w- Look, I know we haven't had as deep a dive on, our, on the US Open draw and our US Open predictions as we probably would have planned to in this, in this podcast. It was sort of when we were doing a podcast schedule, build as the US Open preview, but events have uh, rather overtaken us. Don't worry, you'll hear all of our ludicrous predictions uh, in the fullness of time. We're going to be doing these every day, so you'll you'll get your fill of us talking about what's happening in the tennis over the course of the next couple of weeks. I know we haven't had a chance to talk about Andy Murray. He beat Alexander Zverev, his first top 10 win for for forever. Um, have you got win the women's tournament, by the way? Asaka. Asaka. She's not not even going to be fit. I'm concerned about her fitness. I'm concerned, but... I think she's playing the best tennis. Yeah. Yeah. I said we... I just said we didn't have time to do this now, David. (laughs) Who have you got, David? I know, but isn't it fascinating? The thing is, so if we get first ball played tomorrow, that means if she pulls out, you two are in big trouble. Yeah, but if Sasnovich comes, you know... Yeah. Into the course if and, and, uh, yeah. Then we'll be fine. Yeah. Right. The okay. algorithm rewards risk, David. Does it? Yep. Yes. I've got, I've got Serena Williams winning the title. Have you? Yeah. You see, I've I've predicted Serena Williams. I think to win every Grand Slam, barring mm. the two French Opens since she came back. And this feels it just feels like a time where I can't pick her to win because her tennis doesn't look close enough to winning. She's gone, mm. she's gone three sets in every single match she's played since she came back. I mm. don't know. I think it's possible that she could... Of course, it's possible she could play herself into form and start motoring and look like the favourite in going into the second week. But at the moment, it feels a long way off to me. When, it, when I thought it was going to feel like her time coming back, but it, it hasn't gone that way. It wasn't Grand Slam winning tennis this week, even in a depleted field. And I think... For me, what's most worrying, because I don't doubt Serena Williams has the tennis in her to win a Grand Slam still. I really I really don't doubt that. But I think what's worrying to me is that she's losing these tight matches. Um, and I think the scar tissue is 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 building up. I do. Um, yeah, the, the, the collapse against Maria Sakkari in, in that third set. Um, the fact that she should have won it in two. Um, and when, when the going got really, really tough... She just, she let it slip. She let it slip. For me, that is that is a worry. Um, and the relative pressure of that situation, situation she was in this week and in Lexington compared to a similar situation at the US Open is, well, it's minuscule by comparison. So, Well, I've got a play in Kerber in the final, so there. Good God, David. Kerber? <laughs> yeah, Kerber, yeah. You know, right. former champion. Wow, back with Torben Belts. Have you gone for yeah. Marin Cilic in the men's? No, right. I've I've gone for a Medvedev Djokovic final. I think I have two. 
I've also got Raonic in the semis, despite having not put him in the mix. <laughs> <laughs> He's, is that hedging? don't know what that is. Uh, um, <laughs> has anyone got Andy Murray in their quarters? No. No. Disappointed in you, Catherine, if, if you've got Andy Murray in your quarters, because I thought you would be backing team with me. Have you, you've gone back on your start of your prediction based on his admittedly horror show against Krajanovic. No, nobody asked us to make that prediction, Matt. What were we thinking? I'm well, actually, I'm not sticking with it because I've got Djokovic winning the tournament. But um, <laughs> yes, yeah, so um, you can pipe down. <laughs> but I've got him still getting to the final. I think um, Murray's got quite a tough first round, hasn't he? Hasn't yes, he? Yes, Yoshihito Nishioka, who really drew Dan Evans into a very physical battle um, in Australia. Beat him comfortably in the end. Yes, he did. Oh gosh, yeah. yeah. Uh, was that before? That was before I even arrived. That's why my memory of yeah. that is hazy. Yeah, he, he's he's a bit plane. of a Roberto Bautista a gut ball machine, isn't he? Yeah, and so I think he might make it tricky. Yes, but if but if Murray um, if Murray can win that, he's likely got Felix Auger-Aliassime in the second round, which which very much is a match I would yes would like to see. Yes, please how, to that one. How pumped up Murray would be in that. I think Murray versus any kind of next gen is one of my oh. favourite <laughs> I, I think at the moment. He's on a sort of mission. I think his whole return to tennis is just a mission to beat yeah. all of the next gen. And, I think so and too. Sort of prove himself. I, I think that Zverev win at the Western and Southern Open will is one of his favourite ever wins. Yeah. I really, he Murray, loved it so if much. If Murray could play six next geners, I would put him in the final. Yes, it's agreed. Like, it's like it's like everyone was saying Serena Williams needed to play seven Sharapovas to win a slam. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> if she played seven Sharapovas, she wouldn't lose a set. No. <laughs> um, so that is the US Open. Um, yeah, you'll you'll hear all of our predictions. I will be quizzing David on Angelique Kerber. Um, in the fullness of time, we've got we've got there. fourteen podcast, or maybe fewer than fourteen. If she loses early, uh, maybe we'll have to do the Angelique Kerber quizzing early doors. Um, we won't be seeing the Bryan brothers at the US Open, and we won't be seeing them. I'm afraid to say ever again on tour um, because they this year announced their retirement from tennis after 26 seasons on tour, 119 titles. Uh, all four slams, winners of the career Grand Slam, 16 of them in all together. Um, they've won all nine Master Series titles, um, at least once, 39 of them in all. They've won Olympic gold um, and they've won four end of year titles. And they have been tremendous ambassadors for the sport, for doubles and they will be immensely missed. And I'm sad for them that their retirement announcement got rather lost in the melee of political tennis news this week because they deserved they deserved a real fanfare. And um, it's it's a shame that they haven't had the chance to have that. It's a shame that the, the pandemic is rather poo-pooed their, their chances of any kind of proper farewell. Um, yeah, and this was supposed to be a... A lap of honour, wasn't it? Yeah, I hope they know that their their contribution to the sport is is recognised and appreciated. I mean, for, for a start, they've always been really good blokes to deal with. Um, off the court, they are somebody who'll always give you an interview. They're always waiting for to give an autograph to people. You know, they don't let anybody go home feeling 
bad about an experience of having watched their matches and they just made it fun they made tennis fun to watch in doubles and they are one of the all-time great doubles teams and uh yeah they'll be really missed i think on the circuit by a lot of people um and yeah i I enjoyed watching them enormously i I dare say they'll be around quite a bit though they're the they love the sport Mm. absolutely love it Uh, and i'm afraid that brings us on to our final order of business which is um an extremely sad one, um, and that is to to mark the death of uh, a colleague of ours, David Mercer, the British tennis commentator, passed away this week very suddenly at the age of seventy, and um, it's it's had a lot of us reeling. That news um, really shocking. Somebody that has been so involved and so present in the sport, particularly in this country, but but most of the the tennis world will be will be aware of him and will will have heard his commentaries at at one time or another and david i know of us you're the one that that worked most closely with him and i know it was a shock and and desperately sad news yeah well i i got to work with him for 7 years at bt sport when they had the rights to the wta tour and and he was there from the outset of that as was i in 2013 and i'd known him for already for 15 years on the circuit when i was a communications manager and then eventually a, a commentator in my own right and he was always one of those that was happy to have a chat with you about the discipline of commentary and give a few tips from his own experience he was always he was always good like that and and good fun good fun to have a chat with have have a meal with at a tennis tournament and absolutely loved the game and his reach went far within it his history in the sport he was a chair umpire for many years he was the chair umpire for the 1984 uh, Wimbledon final between John McEnroe and Jimmy Connors. Um, great photo that we saw of, of him standing in between those two legends of the sport um, a couple of days ago. And for me, we often talk about the 90s when I fell in love with the sport. And he was so often the commentator that I'd be listening to, invariably on Eurosport and, and often doing single person commentaries, which is not an easy thing to do. I, I've tried them before with where you've got nobody sat next to you and you've got to find a way to bring a match alive or at least add to what you're seeing. And he had that ability. He had that ability to not get in the way of the action, to just talk around it, knew when to be quiet and just let it breathe. And and he was also a great radio commentator as well. I heard him, uh, some archive of him commentating on Andre Agassi winning Wimbledon in 1992 for BBC Radio. And then seven years later, I think it was 99, that he actually commentated on Agassi against Sampras for BBC television. So he he did it all, and he was one of the greats. Yeah, very well said, David. We will be, he will be hugely missed, and uh, our thoughts very much with uh, with his loved ones because um yeah it was unexpected news and desperately sad um i'm sorry to end on on such a sad note but i think it's fitting for for david mercer um to be to be remembered and that i think is it for a bit of a marathon of a podcast <laughs> it's good to start off a two week uh, daily stint with a marathon of a podcast isn't it but we're looking forward to it, aren't we? We're looking forward to a fortnight of Grandstand Dailies that we thought might not happen. Um, and I think, you know, when we're all <laughs> exhausted, which I'm sure we will be in, in not much time, um, I'm just going to try and remind myself that I'd written off this slam happening. 
I'd totally written it off. And uh, yeah, as as one very wise tweeter once said to us in relation to Andy Murray, you enjoy something all the more if you thought you'd never have it again. And OK, I thought we would have the US Open again, but I certainly didn't think it would grace the horrors of 2020. So um, let's all enjoy it uh, and go and get some sleep because it's going to be... Um, a big fortnight and Angelique Kerb is going to reach the final apparently. Yeah. What time are you on air, Catherine? 3.30pm in the UK. Um, there are rumours swirling that Mary Carrillo might make an appearance on Prime uh, in the opening of the show. So join us, tune in. Can't wait. And uh, yeah, Matt's got to go check into his caravan. 